All right, so we've had a bit of a break with some guest speakers who have been fantastic, and I've heard lots of encouraging responses from all of you, which, you know, sometimes when you're uh, saying how awesome the guest speakers were, and you're like, man, we need way more of them, it kind of sometimes feels like we need less of you talking. So, <laughs> No, it's been great. We are jumping back into our series based on the book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. It's going to be fantastic. Actually, before we head into this morning's message, which is really great. I'm really excited for it, and hopefully it's not like way too long because there's so much good content. Uh, speaking of the service teams of people involved who are just giving it, they're all here for this church, Cedar Valley Church, which is so many people. But specifically this summer, I've had the privilege and uh, opportunity to hire some interns. And we did a little bit of an intro, uh, a little bit back to some of them, but we've got John Elliott, Paige Elliott, and Alex um, Hinchcliffe, who have just been running like all the stuff like they're they're kind of my grunt workers right now it's so fantastic but anytime you've been blessed by the visual media we've been doing all the setup for service any of the social media online posts any of that kind of stuff that's been coming through john through alex through page and actually this is john's last weekend here and john's last week i'd call him up but he's running everything in the booth back there uh but it's his last week here because he's going to camp squia for a week so i just wanted to thank him for that celebrate what he's done here. It's been a huge blessing to me, and I hope and expect to all of you too here at the church, and just even fun videos like that bumper video, getting us into the mood of what we're about to talk about. Uh, I'm going to miss it. So August, he is going to be taking his talents and his awesome energy up to Camp Squia. So keep him in your prayers. Uh, give him a word of encouragement as he heads up to just dive into, man, I can't imagine that, a week in camp world. That's like, you got to have a lot of adrenaline pumping for weeks on end. So, okay, here we go. The ruthless elimination of hurry. When I was in college, I went to uh, Columbia Bible College. I did this outdoor program, and uh, so it was just it's fun. It was like this leadership kind of you get into the get into nature, explore different stuff program, and move towards like organizational leadership. But one of the things is it attract these like super hyper outdoorsy people, and I quickly got into rock climbing. Really fun sport. One of the best things about it, too, it's, it's like good exercise, it's good fitness. There's rock climbing gyms all over. And you can start by just you go and buy a pair of these fancy shoes that hurt your feet like crazy. Uh, and you just start rock climbing. And it's easy. Like, it's kind of low investment. You can buy a chalk bag if you want to be fancy. You get Arteryx stuff and start showing off a bit. But it's kind of like, you know, low entrance in. But then I liked going up high. So you start doing bouldering, which is like low climbing. And you don't need the rope or harness. But... I like getting up higher and, you know, leave the safety behind a bit. So then you buy a harness and a rope, and a bunch of my friends got a little bit into that. So we started doing top rope climbing. You have to get some carabiners and a device and belaying and do some training. Uh, but then you get to go all the way up the wall and down. But then, again, we wanted to get it a bit more exciting. So we got into top rope climbing outdoors. So you got to buy a, a good rope, a nice long one, and... Uh, anchor equipment and a few other things, do some more training, but then you get to go outside and you do this thing called top rope climbing, which is nice and safe. You have to be able to access like a big tree or something at the top of your climb, send the ropes down. And that was fun, right? But I wasn't satisfied. So then you get into the next thing is called uh, sport climbing and lead climbing, where you don't actually get to the top. You have to make your way up to the climb. So what you need is way more carabiners, a nicer harness at this point, because you're, you know, you're starting to become a bit more legit. So you get a nicer harness and better shoes and all this other equipment, and so you start climbing up, and it's a bit more dangerous. 
and it doesn't stop there. Then there's the next step, which, so sport climbing, you have like these anchors already, somebody else has gone ahead and put them into the wall. So you have like, here's where you climb. But if you want to climb anywhere, just like find a rock and climb it, you do this thing called trad climbing, traditional climbing. And you get these devices, like these camming devices that go into cracks and crevices and these different tools that jam into rocks. And you just literally are like, it's you and the mountain and you hope this little piece of aluminum holds your life up on 100 feet up in the air. And that's it, right? But you need piles of equipment, racks of this gear hanging off of you and on a chest strap. And of course, you know, better rope at that point and more stuff. And it just gets more exciting. And then it all ended off with, a, you, you get a few good friends who introduce you to something called mountaineering, where you take all of that stuff and do it on huge mountains. We went to Rainier and Mount Baker, and you need some ice equipment as well as rock equipment, as well as camping equipment, and it all fits on your back somehow. Super fun, right? And I won't even mention ski mountaineering, which I got to do one time, and it's just a mess. Really fun, though. Okay, so you get all of this equipment, and I had to budget and save for it, and there's, here's the thing. I'll give this as a disclaimer at the start of this lesson this morning. There's nothing wrong with actually buying stuff. This morning might sound a little bit like anti-shopping or whatever, and it is a little bit anti-shopping, anti-buying stuff, but there's nothing actually wrong with this thing of like building up an arsenal for your passions and having stuff in your house, in your life. But there's something here, maybe you can't relate to the rock climbing thing, but there's something that you probably can relate to uh, in some way or another. See, for me, all of that stuff, it was awesome, it was fun, and now it's sitting in a pile of bins, which is right next to my pile of bins for mountain biking parts, which is next to my pile of bins for like some computer store stuff, which is next to my pile of bins for skiing stuff. And I'm not even kidding, that's next to a pile of bins that's for like other camping things, and when we go, whatever, right? And then there's car parts bins. We get a lot of storage stuff. See, here's the point this morning. We have a lot of extra stuff, even those of you who are like, oh, I'm pretty minimal, right? Honestly, here, blanket statement, in Canada, we live lifestyles of excess. We have a lot of stuff. We have everything at our fingertips. And why, what this matters about with this series of the ruthless elimination of hurry it's important because, and hopefully you've memorized this a little bit, uh, there's this quote from Dallas Willard that says, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual lives. We often think it's, it's you know, the fallen world, it's the evil, this and that, it's politics and racism and uh, just all sorts of different identity issues. And honestly, the thing that we probably are the most affected by in terms of our faith, in terms of our mental health, in terms of our walk and relationship with Jesus is the fact that we are so busy and hurried. And when you take a look at the life of Jesus, you can describe it as so many things, but you can't describe it as hurried. He didn't brush past people, say, I don't have time for you here, make an appointment with John, right? I've got to do a meeting here in Jerusalem. Every single person he encountered, and he was a busy guy. And he was interrupted like crazy, but he was not hurried. So what we're doing is taking a deep dive look into the life of Jesus, not just the things he said and did necessarily in memorizing it. See, our motto here at Cedar Valley, our mission statement is following Jesus, loving others and inviting, loving people and inviting others to do the same. Quick tagline of that is following Jesus. And a big part of that, arguably the most important part about that is not just knowing stuff about Jesus, but actually living like Jesus lived, living like the ways he taught us to live. 
And so we've been doing a series taking a look at the, his biggest priorities of how he literally lived throughout the Gospels. And uh, a month ago or so, we talked about his priority of silence and solitude. The fact that he would routinely seek out, if you remember the word, a ramos, a solitary place, a deserted place, somewhere where it was just him and God. And every time the heat came on, and, and Jesus was a brilliant man, and he was the son of God, so like the crowds were coming around him. He could have performed a miracle, converted everyone. Instead, he took off, and he left by boat, or he woke up early in the morning to go up the mountain to spend time with God. Silence and solitude was one of Jesus' most important priorities so he could just get away from the noise of this amplified world. And then the other one that he, we looked at too is his dedication to this practice of Sabbath, taking one day of the week, uh, one day of focus, of not focusing on productivity, of not focusing on getting stuff accomplished, but instead of just being present with his friends, his community, his family, and with God and just restoring his relationships, restoring everything about him. It connected him and it can connect us to the natural rhythms of the created world. Six days of creation, one day God rested, right? So then maybe we need to rest too. And it also resisted against a world that never stops. It keeps going and going and going. So one full day of the week. And today we're diving into a third practice of Jesus' teachings and his lifestyle. So if you've got your Bibles or phone app, we are going to be in Luke chapter 12, starting about verse 13. So Luke 12, verse 13, titled, The Parable of the Rich Fool. <laughs> Reads like this. Someone in the crowd said to him, somebody talking to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Okay, so if you've been following this series, we've got hurry in our lives. I would expect that you can all relate to being busy and that being the root cause of so many issues in your life that you've just got hurry and you're working on trying to get over that. I would argue that for all of us in some way or another, one of those draws on that precious resource in our lives of time is due to our stuff. Literally the amount of things that we have, whether it's just in our garages or our closets or even the stuff that we just consume. This morning is not just about material stuff, but just the fact that we take in everything around us, right? We're like garbage disposal sometimes. We just love to consume and consume and we take in stuff. Here's a, a point with a fun stat, not super fun, a bit convicting. Since the 1950s, the average North American house has doubled in size. Our dwellings have doubled in size, yet the average family size has halved. And how many of you here with that doubled size house and half size family have a one or two car garage that you can't even fit your cars in? And my dad's laughing because it's all of my garbage in our garage that he can't fit his cars in there. We've got stuff. And, and sadly, today is not going to be a lesson about really good storage organization practices. I am a master at organizing. Like, we have got amazing racks with bins and labels everywhere. But that's kind of an indicator, maybe. If you have so much stuff that you have to come up with systems of storage, right? We've got so much stuff. 
And here's the thing, there's something bigger at play here. This isn't just me saying stop buying things and you know, try to minimize that and buy smaller stuff that packs up. There is a false gospel message in our world, and not just modern. Jesus spoke against this 2,000 years ago. The Psalms spoke against it thousands of years previous to that. There's a false gospel in this world, and probably one of the most prolific cultural kind of zeitgeists of what is going on in our world that is a root cause of so many issues. See, one author, E.S. Cowdrick, uh, you know, he was talking about the fact that the fall of faith and relationship with Jesus in our Western world isn't because of the rise of atheism or secularism. Um, instead, what he said is, it, he called it this, he said it's because of the new gospel of consumptionism. Not a real word, by the way, but consumption, materialism, the fact that there is shopping. So let me give you a brief history, a bit of an overview to kind of really dig in, prove the point, and understand the world we live in, the noises and the voices that are teaching us and indoctrinating us of this false gospel at work. So what really impacts us, and it's been in play for over millennia, but uh, starting before World War II. So in this era in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was this rise in kind of philosophical, psychological thought, often attributed to Sigmund Freud as a father of understanding this thing, what he called the animal brain. Coming out of the Enlightenment area, we, there was this sense in the 1600s, 1700s, and so on, that you know, like people were rational and critical. We had full control over our thoughts. That was what made mankind unique. And then all of these philosophers and psychologists start saying, like, that's kind of true, but kind of not. We're actually pretty under the control of what he called our animal brain. We, we have impulses. We have these subconscious thoughts, and they can actually be manipulated. They can actually be driven and changed, and that ends up changing your character and personality quite a bit. So then you have Sigmund Freud who's saying these things, calling our animal brain 2,000 years previous. Jesus and the gospel writers called it the flesh, the same kind of thing. We actually have this internal tension. It's not just that we are fully in control of our minds and thoughts every minute of the day. There's actually this tension. Something's going on in our biochemical brains, right? And we started to understand that and learn that. And then what ended up happening, and it was ironic because as Sigmund Freud was Jewish, a few decades later, political powers adopt these ideas. The Nazi party, they use these ideas of manipulation and became a propaganda machine to kind of center around these two sort of ideas that they would push on an entire populace. I want something and I fear something. And then they shaped an entire country and led to World War II using Sigmund Freud's ideas. After World War II, Sigmund Freud's nephew, maybe you've never heard this name, Edward Bernays, he was an intelligence officer during the war. He studied the tactics of different military organizations. He studied the way that the Nazis as well would uh, communicate and the way that they would use their propaganda to shape a world for political powers. And then in North America, he had this thought, if the Nazis could use propaganda to shape the Germany during the war, maybe we could use those same tactics to shape America during peace. So alongside with a bit of a history of this massive investment in manufacturing for military weapons, you have all this industrialization, manufacturing equipment set up, America had this problem. How do we use all of the stuff we have now and get our people to buy into it? So Edward Bernays has been called the 
father of modern marketing because then he started taking these ideas and literally wrote a book called Propaganda of how to take marketing to teach an entire population how to buy stuff. Okay, so check this out. Before the war, here's, here's a few advertisement slogans and ideas that were before World War II and after World War II. Different companies. So before World War II, the Franklin typewriter, simplicity, durability, speed, and visible writing. That was the advertising slogan. Dr. Warner's celebrated Coraline corsets. They are boned with Coraline, the only material used for corsets that can be guaranteed not to wrinkle or break. See, advertising was focused on literally just what can a product do? It's simple, right? Tired? Then drink Coca-Cola. It relieves exhaustion. Fast forward a few decades now, okay? Coca-Cola, Coke, open happiness. This drink will change your mental mode and mood. Open happiness. Do you know this one? Maybe you've heard this one. Save money, live better. It's Walmart, right? How can your life be different because of stuff? Nestle, good food, good life. This massive shift that went just simply from like, this typewriter will do a thing to like, your life will literally be better. Think about a car ad you've seen and the lifestyle that says, if you buy this car, your hair is going to start growing back thicker and fuller. You're going to be driving through Norwegian fjords and everything's going to be great. It's not true. You'll be driving through like, Dudney. it's kind of pretty, right? But like... <laughs> Marketing changed to start talking about this propaganda sense that your life and your attitude and your mood and everything about you will change for the better because of stuff. So on the socio-political side of things, there was a not-so-subtle statement that really just kind of showed that this wasn't even subconscious or uh, subtle marketing anymore. So 9-11, terrorist attacks, world-changing. President Bush made an address a few weeks after um, to the nation, to settle people, to encourage them to calm them down of what was going on, and said this, quote, he warned against, quote, terrorists frightening our nation to the point where people don't shop anymore. This is on the world stage. The leader of the free, developed world, America, says the way that we could stay encouraged and strong as a nation is to shop and buy stuff. And this is, I'm not trying to guilt you or anything, and I don't understand these things. I, I'm not going to pretend like I know how to run a country, but I'm trying to say the fact that we are living in a world that has a marketing propaganda of a different gospel than the way Jesus taught and lived massively. More recently, during the COVID-19 pandemic, it brought our world, like it completely brought everything to massive changes. If you take a big step back, here's the thing that I really started to feel impacted by and I noticed. Um, of the dark spirit of consumerism, consumptionism uh, in our world in the midst of this great health crisis. So while lockdown, we made numerous different attempts to limit the ways we interacted, right? We did different stuff of size gatherings. We had masks. We had all these different things. I'm not going to pretend like I know the health orders or the like social leadership, stuff like that. But what I do understand, what I have seen is the fact that after a couple years of this, we have shifted to the fact where we will do almost anything as a society to protect our ability to shop and we actually are quicker to eliminate our connections with friends and family and loved ones. Think about how long Costco and Walmart were open and now I have conversations with people and that's fair, different health issues, that's fine. 
but you'll go to the mall, but you won't spend time with your friends and community. You need to grow and thrive and recover and build this kind of community, a church community like this. People are scared of church, but they are not scared of Costco. Because in our brains, in our minds, our entire society is saying shopping is a priority. Getting stuff will help. And we've actually put the things that we really need way too low on the priority scale. I don't say this to guilt or shame anyone. I want to illustrate that when Jesus in Luke 12, watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed, and a life does not consist in an abundance of consumption or of possessions. It wasn't just to some spend-happy hoarder. It was to literally every single one of us. Jesus is talking to learn from this passage. So let's do a bit of a deep dive into this passage in Luke 12. So we're going to pick it up at verse 13, just repeating it a bit. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. First note, we'll just kind of pause there. Uh, this person is taking something that is a completely like, socially acceptable norm. Inheritance, what was becoming a practice of dividing inheritance, so it's fair amongst the family. And uh, it wasn't required, it wasn't necessary, but this person is saying, like, hey, Jesus, like, this is a normal thing, but tell him to do it. It will benefit me. I, he is probably a second or third sibling or fourth sibling. Tell him to divide the inheritance with me I right now, and I just, you know, I want it fair. What's useful for us to read, the fact is Jesus speaks against this really quickly because often we sometimes justify and fuel our greed by this is normal in the world. Everyone buys an iPhone every single year. This is normal, right? What is socially normal does not justify what's actually good and beneficial for us. So then Jesus replied to him, man who appointed me a judge or, or an arbiter between you, then he said to them, watch out, be on guards against all kinds of greed, Life does not consist in abundance of possessions. Moving on to verse 6. He told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, the rich man, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. So I do love the way Jesus is so brilliant, the way he reads and speaks and shares these parables. Uh, first off, is the, it's important to know the ground yielded. This whole point, this, this rich man's wealth and abundance has actually nothing really to do with him. The ground yielded this crop. So it's all from a blessing from God, not based on the rich man's personal merit. The idea is that what we have, what we receive, what we have an abundance of is blessing and not something that we deserve because we're better at X, Y, Z. Goes on. Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. There I will store my surplus grain, and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Okay, so a few things. Uh, one, this is kind of like the modern way of saying, I'll sell my business, diversify my portfolio, and live off the interest, an easy, happy life, right? What, what's called like financial freedom. The term financial freedom used to mean like you can live within your means comfortably. Now it means like you can spend all your time in Hawaii and something else will make money for you to buy more stuff in Hawaii. Financial freedom, right? Anyway, what that's saying, there's something grammatical that we kind of miss here. If you kind of go through it, I should have circled them, but the rich man is saying, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my business and I will store up and I'll say to myself and I and me and I and I. doesn't seem that odd in our English language 
We use the word I all the time because we always think about ourselves quite a bit. But in the original language, you wouldn't have had to justify pronouns every single time. So Jesus is making this fun repetition to literally mock how selfish this guy is, that he focuses on him. Every single word he has to say is me and I and myself. And then notice the amount of wastefulness. I will tear down my barns, wastefulness and destruction, just for stuff. One of the biggest industries that's growing right now that's really, you know, cost-effective if you're going to be a business owner is um, small storage bins. Every time a townhouse uh, complex or apartment building gets built, a storage unit or facility gets built as well because you move into a smaller place and you've got to store all your stuff because we all want to live this suburban lifestyle with a garage full of things that a car doesn't fit into, right? Stuff. And then we like tear down places that could be whatever because we have so much stuff that we visit it every few months in storage places. And then notice the movement that goes from kind of pragmatic business decisions, from gaining wealth to like, what's the next step that I do with this new kind of thing that's happened to all these crops to kind of gluttony and hedonism at the end of just, I'm just going to take life easy and drink and be merry. It's a movement. It's saying that greed is subtle. And at the end of the day, here's the big point. Wealth is not a sin, but greed corrupts wealth. In the same way that like sex is not a sin, lust corrupts sex. Greed corrupts wealth and greed moves in slowly and you have this thing that moves simply from business and smart decisions and just making business to hedonism and gluttony and greed and more and more. But then God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. Simple ending statement. Jesus just throws it down. He says, none of this really matters at the end of the day. And what did you do with it all? You made a plan for your own pleasures. You didn't impact anybody around you, anything around you. He says, there's nothing like who stuff, nobody, because you have made it all for yourself. We're fragile, right? I know some Mennonite, like strong farmers here is like, I'm going to live to 180. We're fragile. We are not that long for this world and what is the point of all the stuff that we store? And this isn't actually just about money. I actually like the term consumptionism with that quote before because I think we love to just take in stuff. And it's not just about even material possessions. Um, In general, we just take in and take in. One of the biggest rising uh, instant celebrity statuses now is content creators on social media platforms you've likely heard of, whether it's TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, you're creating content. Content is consumed by everyone else. And it's amazing. I know people who are now making massive amounts of wealth from just making stuff. And then we just sit on our couches and consume. We consume church. I'll even say that too. The amount of us just love to come and sit in church and get church. And then what do we do with it? We just put it up in stores. And rather than finding out what is our priorities, how do we live it out? How do we act it out? Following Jesus is not taking in stuff. It is acting and living out and taking what we consume, but actually putting it out, right? You kind of get fat off a church sometimes. We don't need more Bible studies and more facts and more data about stuff and know more about the original Greek words kind of had this funny grammatical thing. doesn't necessarily help when we are literally 
speaking on false gospels that is actually pulling people away from real relationships with God. A sermon like this makes me feel very vulnerable because there's some teachings where I can say like, hey, I'm learning this and I'm going this way and, you know, here's how I've learned how to model my life. This is one of those ones where I kind of do the research and I think, holy cow, can somebody else preach this message? Because I need to be in that side learning a lot of this. I've been very blessed by having a wife who does not have unhappy habits as me um, because she helps me away from that. But I have a lot of stuff I'm learning through speaking this, of like, man, I need to get rid of this. I was looking to, as I was, yesterday, as I was finishing doing something on this, I was looking around my office and I thought, holy cow, there's, I have like this bucket of USB cables because I just might need one one time, right? Like, 12 of the cable and I'm like, yeah, but it could be handy sometime. I just have stuff. thing that I can also relate to is my ADD brain just loving to get distracted and as I'm trying to write sermons or do research on whatever uh, and then my phone beeps and I open that up and then I go over to the next scroll right and here's the thing this false gospel in the world of marketing propaganda love consuming so who's ever been caught by a clickbait article or ad and realized they lost 15 minutes of their life because I do that about four times a day uh, I just finished watching Stranger Things and the new season at least, and now, because the algorithms are so invasive, like, everything on my Facebook feed is like, what's going to happen in the next season? Did this character... And how about these people, right? And I could tell not many Stranger Things fans here. Anyways, I am a complete fool, because I already know, I saw the same things that these article writers would have written, but then they're like, this character's coming back to life, so I read thing and it says nothing helpful right but there's a hundred ads I scroll past thinking they don't matter and I just keep going through and then the next day another article of clickbait comes up and I'm convinced like maybe this one will have the answer for me and I just take in more stuff right and I suddenly realize how much time I've wasted we occupy our minds and our bodies and our storage rooms with things and the practice of Jesus is actually much closer to the thing called minimalism and we're going to talk a little bit about that. So here's the thing. If we're so hurried in our life and we have so much stuff, it's simple math. They can't both be sustained. If we have so many things that we make our lives busy, we don't have enough time to do and maintain and sort and organize and spend the precious time we have organizing stuff, we might need to learn to live with a little bit less. Jesus modeled this practice uh, for followers of him, his disciples, for all the people around him, uh, it's been called different things. It's been called Greek Stoicism. Monks call it frugality, but that's a word that has only negative connotations now. Uh, we could call it simplicity. The modern term would kind of call it minimalism. But we're not talking about like an architectural design or that iconic picture of Steve Jobs, a fully white room with one chair listening to music. This is a lifestyle of how we prioritize stuff in our life that we take in and what we keep. See, for Jesus, here's the thing. He gave us this baseline in terms of stuff. When he sent people out, he said food and clothing. could be also interpreted as covering or shelter. You live in the West Coast here, you want an umbrella, probably. Food and clothing, that's a far cry. Jesus didn't give us specific, like in, in his, the Bible verse we're studying through this morning, it didn't say you can only buy four pairs of Crocs. We, we didn't get specific ratios like that but we do see is the direction of less. Everything is less. 
And so that's what we're going to be diving into here a little bit. So this practice of minimalism, uh, Joshua Becker, a pastor and now an author on minimalism, this, he said, quote, Minimal, sorry, minimalism is the intentional promotion of things we most value and the removal of everything that distracts us from them. So here's 12 points. The author of the book that we're using is the study for this loves lists. We're going to go through not all of these in depth because there's a lot, but 12 points makes sense, right? 12 disciples, 12 months in the year. 12 points. John Mark Homer offers us these helpful points of 